Welcome to Hardware Addicts, a proud member of the Destination Linux Network. Hardware Addicts is the podcast that focuses on the physical components that power our technology world. In this episode, we're going to discuss picking the right monitor to increase your productivity and match your workflow. Now, this week, we're not going to have a separate camera corner as we need the whole show to cover this topic. There is so much going on in the monitor world. How do you know which one to buy? We're going to help you with all of that. However, Wendy will also be dropping knowledge bombs in the monitor segment, talking about the color arena. So sit back, relax, and plug in, because Hardware Addict starts now. I'm Ryan, your tech guide through the universe, and with me today are my two co-hosts, Wendy, a resident photographer extraordinaire and hardware enthusiast, and Michael, the software sage and hardware Padawan. Let's find out what tech adventures everyone has had this week. Michael, I hear you're giving a pass this week. Do you have no tech? Is that what's happened again? I am again? not giving a pass. We oh. are doing the, the segment about monitors because of my need to get a new monitor. And we're going to get into that later on. So this is not a this is not a pass. This is a postponing. I like it. Build some anticipation there. Suspense. So let's move on to Wendy then until we get to Michael's segment and monitor. So Wendy, what kind of hardware have you been playing with? You know that lens that I was thinking about buying the last time we were chatting? Well, I went ahead and I bought it. I couldn't help myself. I had nice. to buy this lens. It was just way too cool and I needed to play with it. You left it in the box a while, right? Oh, heavens no. Not even <laughs> close. So here's the story of how it arrived. I thought it wasn't supposed to be here until Thursday of this week. So right now we're recording on Tuesday. And Monday, my daughter and I had an appointment to get our hair cut. I've had this on the calendar for the last three weeks. I open the door and I see this box sitting here. It's from Japan. So that's where I ordered this lens from. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I know we need to be walking out the door right now, but I can't help myself. We can't go until I open it up. True hardware addict right there, Michael. <laughs> that's what you're supposed to do. Oh, that's what you're supposed to do. Okay. Yes. I, I think I got and it And that's now. exactly what I did. I took me forever. Like It's those so excited jitters that it's hard to get the stupid box open. And then it was packaged so well between the newspaper around it and then the bubble wrap all around it that I was struggling to get the bubble wrap off. This is an older lens, so it was probably made sometime in the 80s. It is manual focus. And I shared a picture with both of you comparing this really cool 500 millimeter lens that's made with mirrors and just one lens to a two to 400 millimeter lens that I have that's gigantic and heavy. And then a stock lens, ones that you can get in a kit that's a 70 to 300 millimeter lens. The size difference of this thing is just absolutely amazing to me. It is probably one of the coolest features about it. You can have such a zoomed-in focal length in this nice, tight, compact little body of a camera lens. I haven't got to play with it yet, but it was out of the box as soon as I realized that it was at my house. We were actually late to the hair appointment so I could open it, uh, but it was worth it. And I can't wait to share some pictures that I'm taking with this lens with you guys. So no next time we get together, 
I'll be talking about my experience with this lens and have some image samples for you. The images are quite astonishing. The difference in size between these, between the refractive lenses and the catatropic, is it catatropic? Something like that. Tropicana? It's a funky word. Yeah, Tropicana. The Tropicana lens, <laughs> uh, the 500 millimeter lens is just absolutely amazing. It's half the size of the 400 millimeter, but it's yeah. much wider, it looks like, than both. It's probably really close to the same width as my two to 400 millimeter lens, but it's so cool to have such a compact size and it's really lightweight for what it is. I was trying to use it handheld and it was still like I couldn't stabilize it very good, but I was also my excitement was way too up. Like I had such an adrenaline rush from it showing you had up the geek early. shakes. Yeah, I know. So I'll probably put it on a tripod next time I go to use pictures, but to just walk around with this lens really wouldn't be that bad. However, because it is manual focus, you'll really want to have an extra steady hand regardless in order to get that focus just where you want it. So there is a lot of fun playing with this lens here in the near future, but I did go ahead and buy it. It is, It has arrived, and I just can't wait to share some images with you. Love it. New toys pretty much all around. How is that new Lenovo tab for you, Ryan? So I had an interesting revelation while I was going through some other YouTube channels, watching some creators work. And as I'm setting up my battle station here, we do the podcasting, the video podcasting with Destination Linux and, of course, Hardware Addicts and my own show, uh, YouTube channel as well, trying to get the perfect setup for everything, including the monitors, which we'll get into later. But one of the ideas that I had is we have live chat when we're doing the live show, Destination Linux, every Sunday. And we have people who join Twitch. We have people who join YouTube. And so I wanted to be able to watch that live chat go on and be able to interact with the audience at times where we're pausing or they're bringing in different points without having it on my main screen, because I have to have so many screens up at the same time to do that show. We've got uh, a video portion, which we all have to be in. Then I have show notes, of course, that are going on and I have local recordings that are happening. And then I've got our patron room piped in. And so there's all of these other screens going on and having chat trying to range in the window as well is just not fun. So what I picked up was a Smart Tab M8. Now, what this device is technically kind of meant for is to be like a smart home hub. And so it's a little tablet that comes with an actual base that you can dock it in and that base charges it. Well, that's perfect to sit under my monitor and allow me to have, because this little tablet also has a feature that allows you to have two windows open at the same time, I can have both Twitch open and I can have YouTube chat open and I can have that little tablet sitting in its dock so it's always charged right underneath my monitor sitting on top of my DBX286S, which is an audio processor. And so it's been working perfect. And you can also do other cool things with this as well. As Michael, horrifically to Michael, I've turned it into a soundboard uh, with an app. So I can yes, feed sound through this tablet uh, into my Behringer mixer and do different sound effects and annoy Michael uh, often, which is very fun as well. It seems to be one of your favorite pastimes, this trying Not to one Michael. of, it is the favorite pastime to annoy Michael, gotcha. yes. Yeah, it's his most important. And it's not that bad that he's doing it in general in like regular conversations. It's that he's doing it when we're doing live streams and like, come on, come on, Ryan. 
Stop it. <laughs> I, I can't. It's too fun. Oh, is that like him singing while you're trying to get ready? Oh, for no, 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 no. When we, when we do duets, I think that uh, our They're karaoke beautiful. streams are fantastic. Everybody should yes. subscribe for those for sure. Well, Absolutely. everybody has their own opinion, and I guess you can have yours too. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. This little tablet is not particularly impressive as far as specs go, although I quite enjoy it. I think Lenovo did a really good job giving you a very base version of Android on here with not a lot of their own fluff added in. I'm not thrilled that, you know, a lot of it's kind of made around Google Assistant and things like that because I'm just not a fan of those type of services from a privacy standpoint. But spec wise, as a MediaTek A22 processor, it's a quad core. So you got four times A53 at two gigahertz. It runs Android Pie. It's got two gigabytes of RAM, 32 gigabytes of eMMC uh, storage. And of course, you can go up to a terabyte in micro SD and it's 1280 by 800 IPS touchscreen at 350 nits. So it has some pretty good brightness in there. Uh, overall, it's a decent little device. I picked mine up for, I want to say they're about $120, $130. Sometimes you can see them on sale for around 99 bucks. Um, we'll have a link in the show notes where you can pick one up. I think it's a fun little tablet for, again, running something like what we're doing with a studio, or if you just wanted a really simple, inexpensive tablet that you wanted to take on the go to do some ebook reading or things like that, I think it could work for those purposes. Nothing super fancy, but I think it's a fun way to kind of increase your screen real estate as well. Oh, yeah. I think that's a really cool approach to it. And he, when he mentioned that he was going to be getting this, he couldn't help himself from telling me what he was getting because it's just a, it's it's a very good productive thing for what we do with content creation and, that, and looking at it from that perspective. So, of course, I decided to completely copy it and get it too. And so I have the same tablet docked on my desk right underneath my monitor and it gives me a somewhat of a three monitor setup but not exactly uh, so i have uh, two big monitors that we just got we're going to talk about in a second plus this little tablet underneath it for extra features and you know touch uh, functions and i'm thinking about trying to make like a stream deck type of touch panel thing to integrate with my system which i think will be fantastic but the coolest thing that I think about this tablet is definitely the dock. The dock is such an awesome idea because you have, you don't have to worry about charging all the time and it just, it just cleanly sits there. But it also has a battery protection mode, which is one of the, I think the selling point for this kind of thing, because it stops charging the battery when it gets to 60%. So it, ne it doesn't go to 100% and just sit there forever. You can make it where, where the, because it's on by default, as soon as you're docking it, it just means that your battery is going to last a lot longer, which I think is a fantastic thing. So you can essentially dock it and just leave it on and not have to worry about, you know, the battery being charged too much. And that's such an important feature when you're talking about something that stays docked like this, because otherwise your battery is just going to completely die if it's just staying at 100%. You're just going to keep losing capacity, capacity over the weeks and weeks of it staying on. Uh, so it's really nice that they do have that built in. And it's a very prominent feature. It lets you know it's in that protection mode. So you don't freak out of why is this thing stop charging all of a sudden. It's a really nice feature that they added into it. Yeah, sure. I like it. Another thing I like is the sponsor of this episode, and that is DigitalOcean. 
Now is the perfect time to dive into the digital ocean. Their new app platform service helps you build modern cloud-native apps for way less money. With that platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites faster and easier than ever before using a simple, intuitive interface. You simply point the app platform to your GitHub or your GitLab repository and let it do all of the heavy lifting. No matter you're using Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, Node.js, static sites, Docker, and container images, it supports all of these things. So you can just point it to your GitHub or GitLab repository and just let it handle it all for you. And by running the app platform on their own infrastructure, DigitalOcean keeps your cost significantly lower than with other products. Plus, it's built on top of DigitalOcean's Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup. And as a listener of the Hardware Addicts podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Actually, it's better than free because DigitalOcean is giving away $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's app platform. I want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Hardware Addicts. So in our core story this week, we're going to talk about picking the right monitor. Now, I believe, and I include myself in this category, that many of us have ended up picking the wrong monitors for the type of work that we do most often on our computers. I think I have picked the wrong monitor every time, always, since I've had a monitor until now. And I think there's a lot of people who find themselves after this segment saying the exact same thing. Because let's say you spend 99% of your time working on code or looking at text, and 1% of your time, if you actually think about it, gaming. And that was actually pretty close to my actual workflow. And things changed considerably for me over the years, and I really never considered that factor. I knew about monitors, I knew what specs to look for, but specifically, I knew about looking at things for gaming. Because prior, when I was building machines and doing builds, everything was about gaming performance on there. So I was looking for those low response times. I was looking for the refresh rates. I was looking for things that I would typically want for a full-time gaming machine. But the reality is most of my equipment now is studio work. 99% of it is writing shows. It's looking at text. It's doing audio recordings. It's doing very different types of things, looking at logos and pictures and, and building web pages and doing coding. And so I have all these gaming monitors that I've been using, but they are not pristine for that. They're really not made for that. So what I want to talk about is the fact that you probably, if you've done any research on monitors, are coming across the same thing that every tutorial you see on YouTube, nearly every single article you see out there on the internet, if you just type in, how do I pick the right monitor, you're going to find that they're focusing on gamers. Because those are the individuals who generally are most interested in the type of specs and things. And despite the fact that I've always focused on these refresh rates and response times and resolution and the 1% of the time that I'm using the, game, the monitors for gaming, I needed something that was going to be entirely different. And I kind of realized this when I started working with Michael on the fact that he had this new ultra wide. Well, we'll get into that in a second, but he had some new monitors and he wasn't happy with them. And I started asking about his workflow and realized I really had never asked myself some of these same questions. And I ended up, of course, going along this journey with Michael and kind of refreshing my whole setup here. Before we get into all of that, I want to let you, Michael, kind of take a moment to talk about your monitor 
experience up to the point of us having that conversation. What were you looking for? What did you get? And what were some of the problems you were running into? Most of my journey was just getting monitors that I thought were good at the time. So when I moved this past time, I was I had three monitors in my setup. And all of these monitors, actually two of them were TN monitors. Uh, we'll get to more details about what that means. And one was an IPS monitor. And I looked at monitors being like a high-end, high-quality monitor. And it it did its job. It had good color and it was fairly... Uh, valuable for what I needed it to do. But I wasn't really, I didn't really know what I was doing when I chose it. And this was years and years ago. And in the process of the move, I unfortunately somehow broke the monitor and I broke the most important monitor. And I, I don't know how I actually had it wrapped and was trying to protect it and it still didn't work. Uh, seemingly it was very fragile. So it has like a massive LCD panel screw up thing. So I had to get a new monitor. So I decided I'm going to upgrade. And I've always seen all of these setups that like uh, on, on Reddit or just on YouTube talking about like these really fancy setups and so many of them have ultra wide. So I thought that'd be cool. Just have one giant monitor. Why have three monitors when you can have a giant one? And so I got an ultra wide. And I do think ultrawides are very cool for what they're for and who they're for. But I learned that they're not for everyone and they're not for me. So I decided to send the ultrawide back for a variety of reasons. But similar to what Ryan was talking about, you said about the 1%, I would say probably around that, you know, maybe a little bit more for gaming and watching movies and stuff. But uh, because I would do... Uh, the ultra wide for the most part, not those things. It seemed very, pretty wasteful. In fact, I realized that like the biggest reason I decided to send back the ultra wide was because I had a bunch of neck pain and I thought that maybe there could be ways I could solve this problem, like tiling window options, or for people who use windows, there's the fancy zone system that allows you to kind of like specify certain areas of the monitor to put windows in and that kind of thing. So if you use windows, you might be familiar with that. And it kind of worked a little bit, but it also wasn't that optimal because I would have a window in the middle of the screen that's in the tiling functionality. And then there's like a bunch of wasted space on the right side that's just nothing. So it wasn't really that efficient for the most part. And when I was gaming, I realized I don't like it, especially when I was doing game streams where the entire game is taking up the whole monitor. While it looks awesome, and when you play the game off stream, it's awesome and it's, it's a really good experience. Having the OBS and the chat and the everything else underneath the game was very difficult and annoying. So having a separate right. monitor would be was so much better. That's one of the other reasons I wanted to send it back because there was just a bunch of issues that I had and, you know, it could be technical things related to like the streaming. But I think the biggest reason is because I just had a bunch of neck pain from looking to the left or the right when I didn't do the middle tiling because I was trying to use up the space as much as possible to be efficient. And I, I just don't get it. A, a lot of people like ultra wide and that's great for them. But for me, I'm not a fan. And I think that's fair. I, I think a lot of people get onto hype trains sometimes with some of these things like curve monitors and non-curve monitors, things like ultra wide. Of course, they can get a lot of hype. And we had 3D monitors there for a while. These things could build hype. 
I wouldn't put, of course, ultra wide in the same category as 3D, but you get what I'm saying that things get hyped, people buy them, the manufacturers start putting all the monitors out with these type of uh, different orientations and things and uh, people buy into them not realizing that it doesn't really mm -hmm. work well for their particular workflow. And that's not to say ultra wides are bad. They're certainly not. There's a lot of people who love them and get a lot of use out of them. Um, but you found it wasn't great for your experience, which I think was great. So me and you sat down after that and we kind of started talking about you were looking to get something different. And we kind of stumbled upon the conversation of, well, what do you do most with your computers? Because I know you do a lot of graphic design and web design work right. and things like that, which is what you're spending 95% at least of your time doing. And we came up with a couple of names, one of which was Ben Q as kind of the premier designer monitor. Now, I knew this from running a shop with my dad back in the day when we had certain designers come in, we would always look for a couple of manufacturers that these designers in their studios would come in and they would ask for specifically for these monitors. And they were very expensive. They're far more expensive than your average consumer monitor out there, but they were requested for very specific reasons. And so before we get into all of those specs that you would look for in a monitor, let's talk about what you actually ended up getting. So what did you land on after our conversation as far as the model of monitor and some of the specs of it? Okay, so when we had the conversation about the what I do for the most part, and you talked about the designing thing, and you suggested that we get the designer type monitors uh, for me because they were, you know, it makes the most sense. And because the whole time I'm looking at the different monitors, I, I wanted to like kind of re reiterate this part. You were mentioning about how you were looking at the refresh rates and the response times, and I've been looking for that. I was trying to find like the best of all worlds, like the highest color quality I could find while also having a high refresh rate. And then I realized like, if you want to have something that has all of the pieces, it's going to be super expensive and sometimes not even, even possible depending on like how much you want to do. So I focused on the designer side of my, of my stuff, which is the most important thing being the color accuracy. And when you mentioned Ben Q, I had heard of Ben Q, but I didn't know that they had the designer line. So I was super excited to check out the designer line. There's also another one. I think it was ViewSonic. Is that the one that's the... Correct. Yeah. yeah. I remember back in the day, that was the premier monitor for designers was ViewSonic. They, they just had the best color reproduction out there and they were highly sought after and, and in general, more expensive. They had a more expensive line for designers specifically. Right. And I've been accused the same kind of policy where they have the designer focused monitors. And uh, I definitely was excited to try out that. I didn't know if I would like the designer focused thing. I, I assumed that I would, but I didn't know like what was the value of getting it. And I have to say, super excited about the designer focused monitors. We'll talk about that more in, in a bit. But specifically, I got two different monitors. I got a BenQ. 27 inch, which is a PD 2700U, and also a BenQ 32 inch PD 3220U. And we'll have links in the show notes for the specific monitors if you want to check them out. And I have to say, I am very happy with this decision to have these monitors because I think the, the color accuracy is just so good that it, it's 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 worth it. It is a little bit more expensive to get these kinds of monitors. But for me and what I do, I'm very much happy that I made this decision. It's funny because I haven't let Michael actually tell me if he's happy with this decision until now. So I'm kind of hearing it for the first time. 
uh, <laughs> right. ab- ab- about how happy you are with these because I really thought after listening to what you d- spend most of your time doing uh, that you- we had missed the boat with your workflow, but also mine. Uh, so I followed suit a little bit different. I got both uh, two of the PD2700U Design View Designer monitors from BenQ. Now, BenQ is really interesting because they also are kind of the premier gaming monitor as well. So they have a gaming line that is well-respected throughout the gamer community that focuses on something slightly different, right? They're going to focus on response time and and the things that I've typically looked for in a monitor. Uh, And this design view uh, lineup is very different in that it's, of course, focusing on colors and things like that. So from a spec standpoint for the 2700-inch, we got 4K. So they're two 4K monitors. They have a refresh rate of 60 hertz. Now, the monitor that it was replacing at a refresh rate of 144 hertz. This was an MSI curved gaming monitor that I had specifically, but we'll get into kind of gaming here in a second. The max resolution, of course, 3840 by 2160, a contrast ratio of 1300 to one. It's got HDR 10 support, 16 by nine aspect ratio, 100% Rec 709 and sRGB color space with IPS technology, dual view function, dark room, CAD, cam, and animation display modes. 350 nits, PPI of 163, and 1.07 billion colors on this particular monitor. Oh, yeah. 32-inch has a little bit different specs on it. You want to talk about that, Mike? Yeah, the 32-inch is like they're pretty much the same. The 27 and the 3220U are very close to the same, except for the contrast ratio is slightly lower at 1,000 to 1. And the NITS is 300 instead of 350. And the PPI is 140 instead of 163. And I'm guessing the reason is because the the 32 is just more real estate for the screens. So it's using all the same other technology, but because it's a wider screen or a larger screen, it's kind of not going to be able to get to that same level that the 27 has. Bigger isn't always better in the case here. And you're you're kind of thinking about getting rid of the 32 inch and going with the 227s, right? I'm actually, yeah, I am kind of thinking about the 32 might not be the best option. I do think the 32 is an awesome monitor and I am a big fan of it, but I'm not sure if it's might be slightly too big. Although I'm not sure if I would get the 227s. I was thinking maybe I'd get uh, the 27 and then two cheaper, smaller, but still high quality uh, 24s or something like that to have like a vertical, two verticals on the side. Because right now my setup is a 32 inch and a 27 vertical. And while this is awesome, a 27 vertical, very cool, have lots of space. At 4K, 27 inches, I have so much real estate that I just can't use it all. And it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, So it might be something to consider to get a 27 for the main that I have and then getting the verticals to be a smaller one, maybe 23, 24. I don't know what the best option is, but I do think that the current setup I have is very awesome. And I'm, I'm not sure yet whether I will switch from the 32 down to 27, but I do think that having, because before I got the 32, I had the 27 by itself in the landscape mode that you would normally use a monitor and using both of them was great. So one of the things that we talked about, of course, is the gaming. Now these are only 60 Hertz monitors. Now we know everything in the gaming world with monitors is, well, you want more than 60 Hertz for sure. 
You want right. 75 hertz. You want 144. Heck, some are 300 hertz. I have a laptop sitting here in HP open. It's 300 hertz refresh rate. <laughs> now, we'll talk about the fact that a lot of the games that require those really high hertz are your kind of first-person shooters or very fast-paced racing-style games where that becomes really important in there. What was mm-hmm. interesting to me is that you actually play a very fast-paced, usually you would be looking for the Hertz here as a big factor game called Rocket League, yes. which means your frames per second, your Hertz and everything is really important. And you not only play this game, you actually play at a very high level, high tier, ranked tier of this video game. So this isn't something where you're just kind of uh, playing this on the side for fun. I mean, you do that, but you're also really, really good at this game. Now, how has gaming been going back from, I think you had at least 75 megahertz or hertz oh, I had a, before? I had a 144 on the ultra wide, which actually I didn't have a display port that would reach as far as the ultra wide needed. So I only got a hundred with the HDMI, um, which is interesting. We'll talk about that later. But the, the thing I did have before was a 60 hertz anyway, and I've played it on a 60 and then a one a 100 and then also the 60 again with these new monitors. And while the 60 Hertz, I can, I, I, I see the value that people have with, you know, the super high intensity games or the super responsiveness needed games like first person shooters and rocket league is similar to that. It does need a, a good responsiveness, but it's not as critical, I guess, because I haven't really seen much difference in terms of my gameplay on these monitors versus that 100 hertz monitor. Uh, really, it I actually think it looks so good at the 4K high quality color. Like it just looks so much better on these monitors. Even if it's 60 hertz, it doesn't matter. Like why not have the highest quality looking game if you're not if you're playing it for competition? And you're trying to get the fastest response as possible because it's not about the experience of the game. It's more about like how you like how fast you can play the game and how you fast you can get the kills or whatever. Then I get it. But when you're playing it for a leisure reason or just, you know, recreation, I think the way the game looks is probably more important to some people and definitely me because I think the games look amazing on these monitors. And especially like if they have HDR support or whatever, there's so much you could do with these monitors. And I think that I would, I I don't think I would actually go any higher than 60 just because I don't, not only is it looks really cool, I can't tell much of a difference between 60 and a hundred. Now I didn't try the 140 or whatever because I didn't have the right cable, but I don't really see that much difference. It's really interesting you say that because I've, experienced the exact same issue. I had a 144 hertz monitor and it's a monitor I really liked. It was a curved monitor and that I've gamed on and gaming on these 4K monitors, I can't tell the difference. And I'm it's really blowing my mind. Like I can't understand it. I can't fathom it because I could have sworn before I could tell the difference. And I really think after thinking about this long, and I would love to hear our community's feedback on this, that it has to do with the fact that a lot of these monitors that you're purchasing for gaming, unless you're going into the high-level, expensive competition, BenQ line-like gaming monitors, aren't actually giving you the 144 hertz. I think Mm. some of this stuff is actually emulated. 
like they're doing in televisions. Why wouldn't they? We don't hear about it in the monitor world very often, but you hear about it in the television world all the time where they're claiming things like, oh, this is a 144 hertz television. And then you read it and realize, oh, that's a software emulated version of hertz and not really a true 144 hertz that the monitor is performing at. And I think that's what's happening because otherwise it makes no sense. Why is the 60 hertz BenQ monitor actually the colors are better, the picture's better, it's in 4K, and I'm not having any difference in playing first-person shooters or other games I'm playing. Again, I'm a casual player. I'm not a pro, but I can't see the difference. And that, to me, is really telling. So what I think is interesting about this is you have these designer monitors, but that doesn't mean just because 1% or 5% of your workflow is gaming that you can't enjoy that still with designer monitors. It just means the focus of them, of course, is on that design and color aspect. I do think that there is something that could be interesting about, you know, you're saying that there's maybe like they're, they're fudging the numbers when it comes to the Hertz on some of these monitors. And that's possible for depending on the monitor, of course, maybe it's also because of the previous experience of using 60 Hertz. It wasn't 60 Hertz either. Like it was even lower than that. And then when you have these, that are like probably true 60 Hertz though. You can actually tell the difference. You can't tell the difference between that because there might be even like somewhat close to each other. And you know, like the lower version of the higher claim versus the accurate of these. Uh, But in the terms of like responsiveness, I felt like this monitor, these monitors, both of them have gamed great in rocket league. And as rock, as Ryan was saying about how, I'm in a higher tier. I'm in like the top one to 2% of gamers in Rocket League. And that's not to brag. That's just like the skill and the the, the intensity of these games are constantly moving. So like a lot of people, when they first start playing Rocket League, it seems like this kind of boring, boring experience where the, you know, the cars are always on the ground and you can barely hit the ball and stuff like that. When you watch me play on my live streams, you'll see that we're flying in the air 90% of the time. It's just constant movement. It never stops. And the responsiveness is very important. And I haven't really seen any degradation at all by playing this game on these monitors. Wendy, we haven't heard from you in a minute. What is your experience or thoughts hearing this? Ben Q is definitely a fantastic line of monitor. And you guys kind of hit on it already. But it's finding the right tool for the job. And if you're spending most of your times on your computers playing games, then absolutely pick up the gaming monitor. But if you're not, if you have so much other stuff going on in your workflow, they have different monitors out there for a reason. Now, when you guys are talking about the hertz and the refresh rate that's going on in these monitors, I don't know if necessarily some of them are emulated, But I can kind of jump into the camera side of things and maybe clarify how this works. I don't know for sure. So this is another thing where somebody might be able to say, yeah, Wendy's right or no, you're not. But not every pixel is the same thing, right? Right now, the camera sitting next to me is a 24 megapixel camera. On my phone, I have a 50 megapixel camera. Yeah, those are numbers. But if you actually take a picture with both of those cameras and set them side by side, you're going to see 
very different things as you zoom into those pictures. So while there is a number there, sure, it says it's 144 hertz. That doesn't mean that the quality is high. And I'm not saying that these other gaming monitors are bad quality, but there's definitely a difference in saying a number and then a high quality version of that number, if that makes any sense. No, absolutely. I think that falls in the line with exactly where I think something is happening. And it, and, and again, I never spent the kind of money on a gaming monitor that I spent on these designer monitors. So have I got a BenQ line gaming monitor and then compared it side by side with this designer monitor, right? With the same kind of price that I'm putting into these monitors, then maybe I would be able to actually see and tell a difference. And there certainly have been when I went from 60 hertz originally to the MSI 144 hertz monitor, I did notice a difference there. What's interesting is I can't see that same difference going from the 144 to these BenQ 60 hertz monitors while I'm gaming. But then again, I'm older too, and I'm not a pro gamer. And so I'm not saying if, you're, if you spend most of your time gaming not to look for those specs, but it's certainly something to consider to reevaluate at times what your workflow is, because I think that can make a big difference. So the next thing we're going to get into is breaking down some of these specs. What does all of this stuff mean? And there is so many different things to consider when buying a monitor. We're going to try to get through all of them right after we talk about the greatest password manager on earth. That's right. This is the password manager that I share with all of my friends and family. That is Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we use and trust right here on Hardware Addicts. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentications, such as master passwords, adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. I got my dad set up with Bitwarden. He had never used a password manager before. It was really straightforward for him. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. But say you want that premium account that starts at just $10 per year. What comes with that? You get one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, Vault Health Reports, TOTP Authenticator Storage and Generation, plus priority customer support. Make the smart move like many in the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. If you're like me though, you'll want to show your appreciation for this super awesome open source project and sign up for that premium edition that starts at just $10 per year. We'd like to thank Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Hardware Addicts. So what we were talking about previously, a lot of the focus was kind of on the refresh rate because that was one of the things that kind of shocked us through this little ordeal here. And we're going to get into panel types and all that type of stuff here in a second. I do want to mention that the monitor that I went from was an MSI Optics Mag 321 CQR 144 Hertz VA panel type curved monitor. So if you're wanting to know what type of monitor I went from to, uh, that may be interesting to you as we kind of go through some of these specs. But refresh rate, what is it? Well, the refresh rate of a monitor is the speed. The faster the refresh rate, the more times the image on your screen can update, and therefore the smoother that image will look. 
It's the number of changes per second, and that's measured in the hertz. So again, we talked about 60 hertz, like the monitors we're using here. You have 144 hertz. You have 300 hertz, like the HP Omen laptop that I have, and there are monitors coming out like that as well that you can get for your desktop and so on. And most gamers, when they're looking for a monitor, are looking for something that's more than 60 hertz. You go 75, you go 100, but definitely more than 60 hertz. Wendy, do you have a monitor? right now that is gaming focused or design focused? I have not a BenQ monitor. I'd absolutely love to have one, but this is definitely not a gaming focused monitor. It is definitely more of a design focused monitor. So it is 60 Hertz, uh, but Hertz has never been a priority for me. And I've never been much of a gamer. If you've listened to Deal and Extend, you know I talk about how bad I am, especially when it comes to first-person shooters. <laughs> they are not my kind of game, and every time I play, I die a whole lot. Yeah. So this is a 60 hertz monitor because there were other things that were more important to me, and refresh rate was just not one of them. Absolutely. So another one that gamers look at a lot and is closely related is response time. Response time is the time it takes for a pixel itself to change from one color to another color. It's generally measured in milliseconds. So you'll see that in the specs. So you look at the Hertz, you'll see 60, 144, 300, so on. You look at response time, you'll see one, five, those type of numbers. And so it's the ability or the time it takes for a pixel to change from one color to another. It's measured in these milliseconds. And it's directly related to the refresh rate and that a monitor can only really refresh its image quickly if those pixels can actually respond quickly enough to it. So gamers are generally looking for something that's sub four milliseconds and depending on the monitors out there now, you can get something as low as 0.5 milliseconds or so half of a millisecond in response time. Now the BenQ monitors we got, Michael, they don't have that fancy of a response time either. It's five milliseconds, yep. right? Five milliseconds, yeah. So again, this is another huge difference that we should be seeing, we should be complaining about and going, man, the design and the colors and everything's beautiful, but when I'm gaming, I'm noticing this issue, but we're not, which is kind of fascinating to me. One of the issues is that sometimes monitors have a great refresh rate, so you can't just look at one of those numbers, but have a poor response time. And what that's going to do is create the infamous trailing or ghosting. So you don't want to just be lured by one of these numbers alone. If you are a gamer and you're looking for a monitor, you want to make sure you're looking at the refresh rate and the response time as something together. And typically, again, these are two really important measurements that I would have looked for in a monitor and I would have not got anything that wasn't below five milliseconds. So this was a big change for me here. Yeah, this is interesting because the I, I didn't really, I looked at these things like refresh rate especially. I looked at uh, the millisecond stuff or response time uh, a little bit. You know, I was always looking at like the one millisecond response time or the 144 hertz or something like that. I was always looking at these kinds of these metrics that gamers are typically looking for because I always implied that that was like, that means it's a better monitor. And now that I've used a monitor that is more laser focused for what I need it for, it's 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 interesting because I it feels odd because I compared the monitor I got now with the ultra wide's higher refresh rate and for, I don't know what it was but something felt off about that monitor like it I, I noticed it was a, a different I don't know if I could tell if it's like a different refresh rate or like the gaming didn't feel any different 
but something with my eye, maybe it was like just the way it interacted with my eyes made it feel weird, but something was off with that thing. I don't know. Interesting. Well, another thing that a lot of people will look at, maybe the only thing that most people will look at is resolution, right? That's the big Give me factor. the pixels. Give me the pixels there. So how many pixels a monitor has in width times height format? So you want a sharper image and you want something above 1920 by 1080. Gamers, that's the sweet spot is that 2K, that 1440p is really considered kind of the mecca in the gaming world, the, the perfect between great resolution and also uh, being able to have a good price as well as having great refresh rates and response times all packaged together. So 2K is kind of that sweet spot for a lot of gamers out there. But of course, you've got 4K as well to consider. And this is where the panel size comes into play that we were talking about. Uh, if you have a large monitor, it's going to have a lower pixel density and the resolution is lower if the resolution is lower. So bigger isn't always better. Two similar spec monitors, both full HD, 1920 by 1080. But you have one that's 24 inch and one is 32 inch. You're going to see a difference with the pixel density. So don't always think that you got to get the biggest monitor possible when you're looking at your price and budget. You got to think about your particular workspace, how many monitors you're going to actually have on it. And really what's important to you. If the pixel density is something that's important, you really need that clarity. If you're doing a lot of work with text and coding and things like that, that's going to be more important for you maybe to not go with that bigger size monitor, uh, depending again on what your budget is. Most gamers, like I said, they're dreaming of 2K, but we also have 8K and things out there as well. Uh, but that's kind of beyond most people's budget at this current moment. Although one day I'm sure it will be the standard kind of monitor resolution out there. Yeah, and I actually thought that 4K was kind of, you know, unnecessary because of the whole 1440p being like the the most sought after for the gamer side. And now that I have 4K, I love it. 4K I, is beautiful, isn't yeah. it? Oh. I, I don't want anything less than 4K. I kind of want 8K now. I know that that's a little bit excessive, but I, I love 4K. Uh, more pixels, please. Uh, <laughs> I, I was making a joke about I want more pixels. But it's true now. When you have a high-quality 4K, just wow. It really makes text so incredibly sharp. And then if you're working with any kind of graphics and the like, just being able to have those nice, sharp lines and see where things cleanly start and stop is a great help. Absolutely. Now, the other thing that a lot of people I don't think consider, if you're not somebody who's kind of into the tech world, if you're not a hardware addict, is the panel type that your monitor has. And this can make a huge difference in your experience. And of course, it can also make a huge difference in your budget as well. Now, the MSI Optics I talked about, that was a VA monitor. And these monitors that we're talking about here are IPS monitors. But there's also TN, which is where your cheapest monitors are going to be. So when you see that really good price on a monitor and everything that you're looking for looks like it's right on, it's got the resolution you want, the refresh rate you want, the response time that you want, check and see if it's a TN monitor. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Having a TN monitor is not something that you, that you want to avoid necessarily, uh, but just know that it is the kind of cheapest type of panel. It's been around the longest. It's known for having insane response times, uh, but it also has some of the worst viewing angles out there. So it's not necessarily something you would want if you spend a lot of your time doing text work or you were doing a lot of your time doing design work and things like that. You might want to avoid a TN panel 
Instead, you might want to look at something like IPS or the in-plane switching. You're going to get better viewing angles. You're going to get a better color depth. Usually, it's the choice for most professionals out there in design studios and things. They're going to be looking for that IPS panel. And you will, though, however, in most cases, lose some performance or response time compared to that TN panel out there, although they're making leaps and bounds of changes uh, that are happening constantly where that's becoming a lot more minimal. The the interesting thing about the IPS stuff is that is the only thing that I knew about when I wasn't in the like doing the whole monitor search this time. When I was actually looking for stuff on my my own like years and years ago, I did know that I needed to get IPS to have uh, you know the best quality of for what I needed and I'm glad that that's still the case so cuz it means that I actually knew something. Yes. Good job, Michael. Yeah. Did you I'm, know I'm, something or did somebody just tell you you heard it one time on a video and that's just I mean, what it you was pro with. yeah, I probably someone told me it like <laughs> years and years ago. Yeah, probably. But I, I just want to say that I'm no longer a Padawan, I'm a Pata two. Oh my gosh. He had to put a dad joke in there. It's you need at least it one. It is per Michael, episode. right? Yeah, good point. <laughs> so the the last one is the MSI monitor I had again was the vertical alignment or VA monitor and our panel type. And it tries to be a bit of a hybrid between the IPS and the TN, giving you good response rates and performance, but also lacks in some of the viewing angles and things like that. In the particular case with the MSI Optics Mag 321 CQR. How you like that name? Something Rolls real, right off the tongue. Right off the tongue there. This was a very much a gaming-focused monitor. The color reproduction on it was really dull in comparison when you take it, of course, next to one of these BenQ 4K monitors and things like that. But for gaming, it was decent and, again, had a lot of the great specs out there. And it was curved, so the viewing angles weren't as much of an issue in that case. Uh, there are two other terms you're going to hear a lot coming more in the future, which is OLED, of course, coming from TVs, been out for a few years, starting to come into the monitor market, and Quantum Dot that you might hear about, but uh, they're not as common yet. You know, they're things that you're going to start seeing, uh, but we're not going to get into them into the depth of this show particularly, but just know uh, if you hear those terms out there, there are two more terms you might hear when you're shopping for a monitor and probably terms you're going to start hearing a lot more of. Contrast ratio, it means that a full field white image will be a thousand times, if it was a thousand to one, a thousand times brighter than a black one. So a white image will be a thousand times, if it was a thousand to one contrast ratio, brighter than a black one. The larger the number, the more capable display of producing a natural looking image. So the OLEDs, they can do things like 7,000 to one. You just have to have a lot of money to have that. But you can have 7,000 to 1, but 1,300 to 1 is insane. It's it is really, insane. really good. Yeah. yeah. When we, when the 1,300 to 1 and also just 1,000 to 1, com these monitors, like it was, they're super bright at times where I love to have the color accuracy. It's so awesome. But when I need to work on white uh, canvases and white related print design, I wish it wasn't as accurate because <laughs> it's so bright. Yeah. And the color reproduction or color gamut, this is where we need Wendy, I think. Wendy does the best at describing this. But again, when we're talking about BenQ, 100% of sRGB, 100% of the Rec. 709 color spaces, and they're certified for matching these colors accurately. And to me, this was really important because what I'm starting to realize in these monitors 
is that some of these specs, they can put whatever they want. And who's out there really like testing to make sure they're actually giving you the numbers that they're saying they're giving you? How many people actually can see the difference in there? And so when you see something that's certified independently from another company to make sure they're hitting that, like with these BenQ monitors, I think that means a lot. But color reproduction and color gamut, Wendy, this has to be something super important for you in photography. This is really important, not only for people in photography, but anybody who's doing stuff with videos, doing graphic design, even some of you artists out there that are creating your own artwork, you have this vision in mind. And if you're using monitors that are not color accurate or aren't displaying what you think you're putting down properly, if you ever go to have that printed or the like, it's just taking away from that artwork or in cases where that's how you make money. It can be quite devastating for an image that you've worked so hard on and it looks great on your monitor. You send that to print and it comes back looking like absolute yuckiness because what you thought you had done well color-wise didn't actually translate to something that was color calibrated. I, I have done that exact thing where I have seen, I didn't have the right calibration and then I got a print back and the client was like, this is not the right color. So I, I was like, wait, that's, that can't be right. So I went and looked at the, the, the printout and it was, it, it shocked me how bad I like, it didn't look bad, but it was so different that it definitely made me go figure out the color calibration stuff because at the time when I was originally first starting doing, and this was many, many years ago, I didn't know this stuff, you know, because of these different, like so many different nuances of these monitors. The The fact that they're, Ryan was talking about what they claim, there are people who are claiming 122% coverage of the sRGB spectrum or the Rec 709 getting 140%. Like, what does that even mean? So, I, during my process of looking up the monitors and trying to figure out which one I wanted, I did ask Wendy specifically what those meant. And she basically, you know, sat me down and said, okay, it means that they <laughs> don't know what they're talking about and they're trying to pretend they do. <laughs> yeah, or they're just trying to make it sound better than it actually is. So let's take that, what was it, like 120% of sRGB. When mm-hmm. it comes to color gamuts, Your base level one is sRGB. That's very simple, red, green, blue. It's typically what most of your web browsers are going to display in is this sRGB. And in the scope of what we can see, what our eyes can see, it's a pretty narrow little section of that. Now, the monitors that you have are more than sRGB but Mm -hmm. they're less than P3. So I know this is a whole lot of jargon going around. I do have one that's P3. That is full P3? Well, okay, it's 95% P3. Okay, so you're almost there. You're not quite there. And that's the difference that you can get in some of these different monitors you're looking. Okay, it's 125% more than sRGB. Basically what that's saying is, It has a little bit wider color gamut than your standard sRGB, but it's not enough to be one of the other color gamuts. P3 is specifically created by the film industry, so it's not going to be as high as 
say Adobe RGB, but it is definitely going to be quite a bit more than sRGB. All kinds of craziness going on. One of the easiest ways to understand these is to actually look at a chart. There's all kinds of color gamut charts out there. So I highly recommend if you are interested in color gamuts and finding the right color gamut for you, pull up a chart. You can do a quick DuckDuckGo search, get an image pulled up and kind of see what that range looks like. If you are into photography, if you really want to have extremely high color accuracy, then you're going to be wanting something in the higher ranges. Now, what that will look like when it goes to print depends on the type of paper you have it printed on and the type of printer it uses. I mean, there's so much other stuff that goes into that, but just being accurate on your computer then you'll want to go a step above P3 and go to the Adobe sRGB, which covers a lot more of that color space, typically more in the greens. That's pretty cool. I didn't know about the the step above. I didn't know that Adobe's was a step above the P3s. I did want to go back to the part where we were talking about like the not quite having it. So like 95 P3 still sounds like pretty high. But you said that the sRGB is the base level. And I've seen the ones that are ex- you know excessive saying 120 or whatever. And then I've also seen the ones that are not even getting the good quality of sRGB at the base level. So I saw a couple that was 95, 96. And then I saw one that was 99. And it made me laugh because it's like, why would you stop at 99%? You know? It's like running a race and then stopping 10 feet from the finish line in protest to how far they make you run. Yeah, absolutely. And just because something has full sRGB doesn't mean that the colors are good. It kind of goes back to the conversation we were having earlier that I can take two different cameras. One says it has more quote unquote megapixels, but that doesn't mean that the colors are represented accurately. Yeah, they may all be there, but it doesn't show them to you in a clean and accurate way. There's so many ways to manipulate how those colors look on your screens. And there's a million different kinds of ways that colors can be represented or talk about. And some of that comes down to who is naming those color profiles But the main ones that you'll want to watch for are sRGB, which is the base one, the Adobe RGB, which is more what you're going to find if you're doing color reproduction. There is a Pro Photo sRGB, which covers most of the color gamut. Those would be extremely, extremely expensive monitors to get that high on your color. But watch out for those terms. Absolutely. It's one of those things that don't be afraid to ask, jumping on Macedon and saying, hey, this is the modder I'm looking at. What does this color space mean? Because it's hard to put a blanket statement on some of these. It's more monitor by monitor. Okay, this is what they're saying. What does that actually mean for this particular thing? Don't be afraid to look at reviews. We look at reviews for so many other things and specifically looking for reviews that are focused on your similar use case. So I had to look it up when you said how expensive these monitors would be. So I looked up, 
a monitor from from BenQ that has 100% sRGB, 95% P3, and 99% Adobe RGB. And you were not kidding, $2,000 to get this yep. monitor. Budget's always a consideration when we're looking at these monitors here yeah. of what you can actually get. And of course, as we go through these specs and say this is what you should have or what you should be looking for, ultimately, you've got to weigh that against your budget. Right. It definitely has to come down to these are the things that I absolutely have to have. This is the budget I have to spend. And it's one of those cases that we talked about with phones as well. You may have to not get some of the things you'd like to get some of the things that you absolutely need with inside the budget that you're working on. And the most important thing in buying any monitor is what do you do most on it? Because that's going to determine what your priorities are in spending that budget. There's also situations, much like when we talk about computers, you could buy the greatest video card, have a really junky motherboard, and you're just not going to get the performance out of that video card that everybody right. else is. The type of memory that you use. You might have 128 gigabytes of DDR4 RAM that's really crappy RAM that's timed terribly and has lots of latency. And so you're really not, again, getting that great experience that somebody with less RAM might get if they're going for higher quality there. And it's really interesting looking again at this Optics Mag monitor here that it shows things like it has a 3000 to 1 contrast ratio, that it has up to 122% sRGB. And this cracks me up because one of the big reasons that really struck me with this monitor is when I got a, a Zeus monitor next to it and I realized the color clarity on the optics monitor was just so dull in comparison to this Asus monitor that I bought here, yet they're claiming that up to 122% sRGB things. You have to be really careful. Again, BenQ's case, they're actually certifying their colors here. In the case of some of these other monitors, up to, what does that mean? It could be 50, but sometimes maybe 122, depending. Uh, it's really misleading some of these specs and things that you can get right. lost in. And you have to keep in mind that the monitors that you guys just bought came with a factory calibration. And most of the monitors that you're getting off the shelf, they've had some kind of monitor calibration, but it's not for accurate standards. It's for does it look good? Does it seem for the most part accurate? And you may see a monitor that has, in general, it can have really great color, but it may not come to you calibrated in order to use that function you're going to have to take extra steps to get there it's very cool if it comes from like the like it's like a new monitor if it's like a certified monitor or refurbished or whatever they might not have that calibration there but i did order one that was new and it had it came with like a calibration sheet so that like the results to prove what the results are for their calibration which i thought was really really cool yeah I mean, I don't understand what it says, but it's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing to consider in the color space is, of course, your bit depth. Is it 8 or if you have HDR, which in the case, the monitors that we're utilizing are HDR, you're going to have that 10 bit. And this just, in a nutshell, determines how many shades of red, green, and blue your display is receiving. And this could play a part, again, when we talk about different parts kind of throttling your overall performance or experience you have a video card that's able to push these monitors. So let's say you order three 8K monitors, but you've got a six-year-old video card in there. You're probably not going to push them. You're probably not going to get the great experience 
out of them. So you need a video card that can support HDR as well. Uh, if you're going to be uh, looking at getting a monitor that has, let's say, HDR built into it. We also, of course, have th something that I think is personal preference, 100%. Do you want a curve to your monitor? Or do you like it flat? And then we've got things like nits or the brightness. In the case of the monitors, you often see like CDM2 as the rating the monitor can achieve. CD stands for candelas per square meter. It's a measure of how many candles of light essentially are emitted from the screen. Michael, you mentioned, I think, in your ultra wide that it was so bright that you had to put it on zero for brightness. Oh, yes. It was so it was super bright, but it was also like not a good brightness. Like it was just I think it was like overdoing it, trying to compensate for the color because it wasn't super accurate on the colors. It was like 95 percent or something like that. And it was so bright that it started at 70 percent and it hurt my eyes. So I knocked it all the way down to zero and it was still kind of too bright. If I could have gone lower, that would have been better for me because I also like to have my stuff in dark mode. And because I think this is maybe just a personal thing, but I do think it applies to people who are on a computer for a long period of time. The brighter the screen is for the amount of time that you are on it, it could negatively impact your vision. That's just based on my experience because it makes my, it makes my eyes more tired more quickly because uh, I try to do dark mode to compensate for that. But the brighter the monitor is, the the more it kind of makes me not want to look at it for any like long periods of time. So I also do like blue light filtering and a bunch of stuff to compensate. But with that ultra wide, I couldn't go any lower. And that was another thing that I forgot was why I got rid of the ultra wide. Have it going down to zero and it's still being on, that means their brightness settings are a little bit messed up. <laughs> And then you've got things like aspect ratio. I know that you have some strong feelings on this, Michael. There's, I do. There's things like four by three, which is your standard for films, broadcasts, and computer monitors of the past. Of uh, the past, Not today. Yes. No longer standard. It's more box-like <laughs> if you're picturing this in your head because it's a podcast. And then you got 16 by nine, which is 16 pixels across for every nine pixels up. And that's the most popular DVDs, television, cinema, video games. It's more of a letter shape, if you want to think about it that. And you've got 21 by 9, where you won't have the black bars across the top like you have sometimes at 16 by 9. And then 32 by 9 aspect ratio or your ultra wide screen, usually curved, less common. You don't see a lot of 32 by 9 out there, but it exists. There are other weird aspect ratios that things come up with. What's the sweet spot in your mind, Michael? Okay, now... I currently have 16 by 9 monitors with these new monitors we got. But my favorite ratio is 3 by 2. And that's because it's a nice mid-tier between being a lot more space, but also having a reasonable um, width and not having this square feel. However, it also matters that a 3 by 2 has to be at least 2K. Anything less than 2K is just not usable in a 3x2 because of the ratios uh, it is. But if you have, actually, I haven't tried a 4K on 3x2, and I would love to try one now because now that I really like 4K with the 16x9, I think I would just absolutely love the 3x2 with a 4K or more because I do like that ratio because it allows you to have a, a lot more space but also not in a weird blocky style. And so now probably people who aren't extreme hardware addicts are thinking this is way too much to remember. 
and you would be 100% correct. <laughs> yes. How are you going to remember all of these things we just spewed? I can't remember all of these things. Every time you look at something, you have to kind of take into consideration really what it is, again, the purpose that you're looking for, that you're going to utilize your monitor for the most, and then look for those specs that are important there to write down out of the ones that we listed. So you have to go back and listen to this podcast multiple times. That's the important thing. That way we get those uh, download numbers up. Exactly. Every time you want to check to see what kind of what information you need about the <laughs> monitor you need, always download this episode of Hardwareetics. That way you know you have all the information you could possibly need about making the right choice for your monitor setup. There you go. And so we talked about budget, really, to kind of break this down a little simpler for individuals who are out there shopping for a monitor. Uh, you heard all these specs. You kind of understand what we're talking about. But I'm going to break it down for designers, photographers, writers, and then gamers, uh, what you should look for, what are the specs you need to focus in on. But of course, budget is the main thing. Can you actually afford it? And also, do you have the GPU and other equipment in order to run it is also an important consideration uh, to think about. And with this information you're armed with, considering the way Michael and I went, you would have to balance all these factors in making sure that you can pick the right thing for the majority of time that you're using your monitor. And here we go. Let's talk about designers, photographers, and writers, what you should be looking for. In my opinion, all of these specs have their importance. But the most important things that designer, photographers, and writers should be looking for, I think, is your resolution, your panel type. Do you want it curved or traditional? the color gamut, the contrast ratio, and of course, is it HDR? Those are great, important pieces. And I think all of those are very key on a like the performance for a designer, except one I think is very important. And I think that curve should be not in this list at all. I think traditional style flat monitors are the only options for designers or anybody who cares about that sort of thing. Because I learned with that ultra wide I had, which was curved and it was like a 1500 curve or whatever that I think, I'm not, I think it was 1500 to give you a reference point. That is not good for design. If you do any kind of graphic design or if you do anything that requires accuracy, because it would kind of warp the shape depending on where it was in the monitor. So I'd have to like laser focus everything in the middle as much as possible. And it just wasn't that valuable. So I would say if you are a designer, even photographer, if you're a writer, you know, feel free to do whatever. But if you're a designer or photographer, anything in like in the creative space with visuals, I would say avoid curve completely. See, and that really depends on the curve that you have on your monitor because my current monitor that I'm using is curved, but it's a slight curve. So it compensates for that distortion within it. So I'm looking at text. I can look at pictures, all kinds mm. of stuff, and it doesn't have that distortion. Yours was a more extreme curve, and so I can see that being an issue. So it depends on the curve in the monitor, whether you will actually have some serious distortion or not. Yeah. And I think it's a personal preference thing ultimately, but I agree with what Wendy's saying and, and Michael too, that if the curve is too much, then you're going to have that warping. I've seen that in high curve monitors where there's some warping in the images and things like that. And of course, for a designer, that's an instant. No, there's a slight curve to it. Uh, you might not notice that. And it kind of helps with your peripheral vision. That's the whole idea behind the curvature. But it also depends on how far you're sitting away from the monitor. 
uh, whether that's going to have an impact on you or not from some of the distortion aspects as well. So uh, generally, though, if you're not sure, if you can go to a store with any of these, let's say you don't understand anything we talked about, none of this stuff makes sense, or you just don't care enough to kind of learn that type of stuff, then go into a store and look at these monitors. However, you need to actually test the monitor, not just look at monitors in demo mode. This is what gets people suckered into the wrong television all the time. They go there, the televisions have these demo modes or they have special Blu-rays in the back that are running the most optimal picture or video across that television possible. And you go, oh my gosh, look at that nature view. It's so beautiful. The colors are perfect and everything else. It's so vivid on vivid mode. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you get at home and you're watching sports and everything's blurring across the screen because again, you didn't know to look for refresh rate and that type of stuff. So you want to be able to go to a place that actually allows you to play with the monitor. So it doesn't just have a demo up, but maybe a keyboard and mouse attached to it, or it's at least showing a lot of different types of things. And then as Wendy said, go do your research on top of that with some reviews. Reviews can be misleading at times. There's a lot of companies paying for reviews and stuff. So you have to be careful where you're looking at that. So go to several different sites of reviews, look at stuff in person, and then decide what's best for you from that. Because ultimately, all of this stuff can be some of these specs and numbers, I think we're kind of proved the fact that they can be a little bit misleading. You can go have all of the right numbers. I had a 2K MSI monitor. Again, I like this monitor. It was made for gaming, but it had all of the right specs and shows the color reproduction is really good there. It has low response rates and everything else, but I'm having a better experience on a designer monitor. But again, that's where I'm spending most of my time. That's where my focus was. Most people are looking at that MSI monitor. They're looking at the great price that it has, and they're looking at that low response time. It's going to be a really good gaming monitor. So it depends on what you're looking for. For gaming, decide if you want curved traditional. You're going to look at resolution. 2K is the sweet spot for most gamers out there. Your response time, your refresh rate, and then you're going to add in the G-Sync or FreeSync support in there as well to kind of make sure that it's synced properly with your video card, the video card to sync properly with your monitor, uh, which can make a big difference in gaming. So those are the things you would want to look for there, in my opinion. All right. So hopefully this episode has helped change your thoughts and mind on monitors and what you should be looking for. I know that this experience helped me tremendously. So I'm really glad that you broke your monitor during the move, Michael, because uh, through this, it kind of allowed me to take time <laughs> to reevaluate my own workflow which had changed considerably from what it was years ago to now and allowed me to have this absolutely fantastic experience that I've had with these new BenQ monitors. I am such a fan. I cannot rave about them enough. The brightness, the colors, the clarity of the text, coding on them is a dream. I used to honestly spend most of my time just on a laptop. It was portable, it was easier. I'd get on my main desktop if I was going to do some gaming. I didn't really like to code on it and things like that, but that's changed. Now I get on my laptop. I'm like, ew, gross. I want to go back up to my desktop where everything's clear, crisp, and perfect. And so it's made a huge difference uh, in my workflow as well from that aspect. And hopefully it helps you all out there as you're looking for a monitor in 2022 and beyond. That's all. That's awesome to hear, and I'm glad I could help you. And it was. This is very funny for you to say this because when it happened, he was like 
claiming that I broke it on purpose so I'd have an excuse to get a new monitor. <laughs> and that is not what happened. I would definitely not have broken it on purpose. And actually, I was going to get a new monitor anyway because I was going to make that a stick second. To that's what happened. Right. But... Uh, it, but I'm I'm very happy that uh, he understands that there was a value to breakage because sometimes out of destruction rises from the ashes a phoenix of awesomeness that is these monitors. There you go. Well, that's it. Our 52nd episode of Hardware Addicts is a wrap. Thank you for listening to this show that brings you your bi-weekly tech fix. And if you're not all lit up on tech yet, then be sure to check out all the great content on the Destination Linux Network head the destinationlinux.network and check out all the amazing podcasts and YouTube partners available. There's so much there to fill your brains with. Remember, there's no such thing as too much hardware. Learn, build, innovate, and grow. We hope you enjoyed the show and we'll see you next time for another ultra 4K episode of Hardware Addicts that is always calibrated for the best content. Up to 122%. At least, maybe even 320%. See, Wendy, you can go 120